So uh, those of you that have kids know that your emotions can be on a whole different level when it comes to your kids, right? I mean, there's normal happiness and normal pride. And then there's the pride that you feel over your child's accomplishments off the charts. I mean, for heaven's sakes, uh, we get so excited about their first poo-poo in the potty, it's as if the commentators uh, are calling a goal in the World Cup. Goal, right? I mean, just off the charts. Well, it's true on the other end, too, not just with happiness and excitement, but uh, there's pain, normal pain that we feel, and then there's the pain that we feel when our kids are hurt or sick. There is the anger that we feel over normal life situations, but then there is the mama bear anger that comes out if somebody hurts or in any way does your child wrong. Can you imagine the grief, the deep, sorrowful grief that you would feel if your child became your enemy? The child that you've loved from the moment he was born now hates you. The child you provided everything for is now using all of his resources to destroy you. Can you imagine the depths of the grief and sorrow that you would feel if your son became your enemy. That's the historical context of Psalm chapter 3. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 3 with me, please. The very beginning of Psalm 3, we have an inscription that has been there from day one. It is as inspired, it is as impart, important and part of the psalm as what we call verses one through eight. The inscription gives us the backstory. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The king of Israel. King David is on the run from his son, Absalom. 2 Samuel gives us the entire story in chapters 13 through 18. I'd encourage you to read that maybe this afternoon. It all started when King David's firstborn son, Amnon, not Absalom, but Amnon, his firstborn son, sexually abused Absalom's sister Tamar. And King David was angry, but he did nothing about it. And Tamar's big brother Absalom was going to take matters into his own hands. And so Absalom killed his half-brother Amnon because of what he had done to violate his sister. Well, King David was equally as angry at Absalom, but in this particular case, he banishes Absalom from his presence for two years. And you can imagine now, two years being banished from the kingdom, Absalom is seething in anger and resentment toward his father, the king, for doing nothing about Amnon, but banishing him for taking justice into his own hands. Absalom believes to his core that he has been unjustly treated. And during those two years of banishment, he becomes deeply bitter against his father, the king. After those two years, Absalom makes up his mind that he would make a better king than his father. And so 
he goes on a campaign for four years. He was handsome. He was young. He was popular. And Absalom won the hearts of Israel in those four years. And after the four years, when he had gathered enough of a force, both popular force and military force, Absalom led an insurrection against his father, and he forced King David, the beloved psalmist King David of Israel, to flee for his life into exile across the Jordan into the wilderness. 2 Samuel chapter 15 recounts just a snippet of the story, and I read it. A messenger came to King David and said, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and quickly bring down ruin upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, Your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, the king, decides. So the king went out and all his household with him. And note the imagery in these next few words. King David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Psalm 3 is how David was feeling as he ran for his life from his son who had become his enemy. Let's read Psalm 3 together. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. That's God's word. Amen. Psalm 3 is what's called a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament gives expression to to the multitude of human emotions that come as a result of sin and suffering in the world, inside of us and all around us. To understand properly how Psalm 3 relates to us, we have to understand that it has at least two contexts. We need to read Psalm 3 in two ways. And this is important throughout most of the Psalms. It would be a mistake to just read Psalm 3 in one way. We must read it in two ways. There's two contexts. First of all, Psalm 3 has a historical context. It is about King David. It is about his enemy, Absalom, and his enemies, the people who were after him. And it is about God's people, 
who are in God's place under God's rule, God's king in Israel. That's the historic context at about 1000 BC. So 3000 years ago. Psalm 3, would, it would be a mistake to just leave it there. Read it there, but don't leave it there because Psalm 3 has a redemptive historical context. What God was doing there with his people and his place under his king, he is doing and showing us a picture of what God does in history, the history of redemption with all of God's people in God's place under God's king. So Psalm 3 is actually just as much about King Jesus as it is King David. It was immediately about King David, but it is ultimately fulfilled in and by King Jesus and God's people who are united by faith in King Jesus in the new covenant. So whereas we we read it historically, we also understand that the greater application is through King Jesus and then us as we're united to King Jesus by faith. So we see ourselves here in this psalm. And I want to tell you at the very beginning of this that we are not King David in this psalm. Look at the psalm and tell me, who are you in this psalm? You personally, who are you? Friends, you're no more King David in this psalm than you were fighting Goliath. We're not King David. Here in this psalm, we're at the very end of verse 8. Salvation belongs to, to the Lord. Your blessing be on who? Your people. That's us. If you are in Christ by faith, then you are God's people. And the blessings of God's salvation are on you because God delivered King David and King Jesus from their enemies, which means God's going to deliver you and me from our enemies in our great king. That's how we read Psalm 3. So that's what my sermon is going to feel like this morning. It's going to feel like two halves. First of all, the historical, let's look at it from the point of view of David. And then we're going to look at it through the lens of King Jesus. Psalm 3, as you might have noticed, has four distinct verses. One and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight. And uh, that teach us four important lessons. And my prayer this morning is that you will have peace knowing that the Lord saves his people from their enemies. Now, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see King David's enemies. Notice again, verse 1 and 2, his enemies. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. By the way, Selah this is the first time we've seen it in our study of of book one of the Psalms, Selah is a word that we will encounter 70 different times. And guess what? Nobody has a clue what it means. And whoever tells you emphatically that they know what it means, they don't know what they're talking about. Our best guess is that it is either a marker for the musicians to do something, or it is a marker for those who hear and, and read this to do something. Selah has its roots in um, in an upward motion. And so um, what we think is that either the musicians uh, maybe had a, a pause or a crescendo at this moment, or maybe we are to send our thoughts in meditation toward the Lord, but ultimately we don't, we don't know what Selah means. It's just a marker there, and it seems to naturally divide sections of various psalms. We'll find that 70 more times in our study, and I'm not going to do that whole thing again. All right? First of all, we see King David's enemies. Notice he has many enemies that are assaulting him both physically and spiritually. You see the physical and the spiritual enemies going on here? 
I want to point out three things. First of all, uh, he is being confronted by physical harm. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He's on the run because he's in physical danger for his life. And the opposition from the enemy is not coming from some Philistines or outside of his country. It's coming from his own kingdom. And it's actually coming from his inside of his own family. Isn't that grievous? It's not just physical, though. Notice verse 2. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Maybe even more than the physical harm, there is a hopelessness going on here. People are, they are um, jeering against, they're deriding and mocking King David, saying there's no hope for him. God will not save you now, King David. And there's this sense of hopelessness. And then I suggest that there's a tremendous sense of shame. A deep-seated grief and sorrow and shame because this enemy is his own son. This is the beloved king of Israel. And he's on the run. He's being run out of town and being publicly humiliated. Verse 6, many thousands of people. The word is myriad. Myriads of people have what? Set themselves against. They used to love King David. Now they've set themselves against King David and they're all around him. Remember what we read from 2 Samuel, that he went out, not in a great show of force, but he went out weeping barefoot with his head covered. This is shame and humiliation and sorrow going on here. King David has complex and many enemies that are physical and spiritual. He's facing them right now in this psalm. Number two, we see next King David's confidence. In the midst of this attack, in the the face of his enemies, David has a confidence Verse 3 and 4, but you, O Lord, there's his confidence. David's confidence is not in himself or in his military might or in his popularity among the people. David's confidence is in you, O Lord. And what is it about God? Three things, just like we mentioned, the physical harm, the hopelessness, and the shame. His confidence is that God is his shield about me. The Lord is a shield for David. He protects David as his king. The shield was a a piece of of defense armor, and it was often made very large so as to protect the whole body. And David's saying is, Lord, you are the protector of my entire body, and not just maybe in front, but where? All around me. Where did David get this idea that God would protect him? He got it because God made him a covenant promise. You are my son. You are going to sit on my throne, a throne that's going to last for you and your sons. How long? Forever. God made that promise to David. And now, faced with this tremendous enemy, his very own son, David has confidence in God because of God's covenant promise to him. You, O Lord, are a shield about me to protect me from physical harm. You, O Lord, are what? My glory. My glory. In the face of hopelessness, David says, you're my glory. The Lord is the one who gave David his position. The Lord is the one who exalted David to that place of power. And no enemy will take David away from that until God is done with him there. You, O Lord, are my identity. You are my glory. 
And thirdly, you are, Lord, a shield about me, my glory, and what? Lifter of my head. The head that was covered, the feet that were bare. You, O Lord, are the one who raises my head high, even in the midst of a sorrow that I can't imagine. But maybe some of you can. A sorrow that would go so deep that your own son, your own child, would not just reject you, but literally try to destroy you. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. Can you imagine among that, in, amidst that hopelessness and shame that David might not even want to pray? And, and why not? Because David knew where this was coming from. Do you know where this is coming from? This is not just Absalom at work here. This is not just wicked, evil Absalom and his bitterness. God told David, this is going to happen to you. God said, I'm going to judge you in your house because of why David's own sin with Bathsheba and his sin by murdering her husband Uriah. This was God's judgment on David. For his own sin. And in the midst of fleeing from his own son, David is faced with his own sin. Can you imagine? I would be like, that's it, I'm done. They're right. There's no salvation for me and my God. But not David. David counted on what? The covenant promise. You're my son. You're my king on the throne forever. David's enemies, David's confidence. Look at verse 5 and 6 and we'll see David's peace. This is even one step more amazing to me than his confidence. Look at David's peace in 5 and 6. David said, and, and note there's three I verbs here. What, how did David respond to this? Yes, he felt shame and sorrow, but David's actual outward response, three Verbs. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Peace. In the face of your enemy. This is not after it's over. This was not after God defeated his enemy. This is while it's still going on. While he's on the run, having no idea exactly what will happen. David had a peace that enabled him to what? Lay down and sleep. Phenomenal. In the Old Testament, Don Carson says the ability to sleep untroubled is a sign of faith in the protective power of God. And David knew. I know I, I messed up. I sin. Huge, right? But I'm still God's king. And God is faithful to his covenant promises. I can sleep. This psalm teaches us that we can experience peace in the midst of our enemies, not just when they're eliminated. Do you remember one of the beautiful parts of the most amazing and phenomenal, most popular psalm, Psalm 23? Do you remember what King David, the shepherd, says there? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David understood that he could lay down, he could sleep, and he will wake up again. Why? Because it's the Lord who sustains him. Listen, friends, we can lay down and sleep because waking up every morning is up to our sovereign God. 
David's enemies, David's confidence, David's peace. Look with me at verse 7 and 8 and you'll see David's salvation. He prays. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Could you read verse 8 with me out loud? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. King David prayed and he praises the Lord. In the midst of conflict with not just any enemy, but his son who has become his enemy. He prays. And David's prayer in verse 7 is directly in light of his situation. That's important. Remember, verse 1, many are arising against me. So what does he begin in verse 7? Arise, O Lord. Get up and do something about this. David is calling on God to rise up. Verse 2, the skeptics are saying of David's soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So what does David pray in verse 7? Save me, O my God. And, God, and, and David specifically calls on the Lord to do two things, humiliate and annihilate his enemies. Number one, humiliate them, strike them on the cheek. And number two, break their teeth. It's like a wild animal breaking his teeth. He becomes a toothless lion. Can't do much, you know, to gnaw you to death, I guess. So break their teeth. William Plummer says about prayer, mortal men never wield any other weapon so mighty as prayer. Oh, that we all had hearts to resort to God in strong crying out as we ought. David prayed when he was faced with his enemy. He prayed. David didn't just pray. He praised. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not me, my armies, not my popularity, not my past glory. But salvation, deliverance from this enemy belongs to the Lord. And guess what? David knew something very important. This is not just about me. This is about God's people over whom I have been appointed God's king. So David understands that one of the greatest blessings of being God's people is that the Lord saves his people from their enemies through their king. Friends, that's beautiful. David's enemies, David's confidence, David's peace, and David's salvation. Historically, wonderful. You could learn some lessons there. But our real confidence is not just be like David. Be brave like David. Face your enemies like David with confidence and peace. Because what promise do we have? David had a promise. He's relying not just on courage, but a promise from his God. So don't be like David. Be like the people under King David. And let's read this in the redemptive historical context because it's ultimately fulfilled by David's greater son, King Jesus, who also had enemies. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God who became the Son of Man. Why? Because of our great enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Jesus came here to rescue man, all of God's people, from sin, death, and Satan. In our reading this morning, we saw Jesus surrounded by his enemies while he hung on the cross. We saw them scoffing. And what did they say? The political powers, the religious leaders, the people from his own hometown. What were they saying about him? 
you claim to be the Son of God? Let's see if your God can save you now. Sounds like Psalm 3, doesn't it? There's no salvation for him in God. He's a blasphemer. He's not who he says he is. But Jesus not only had enemies, he had confidence. What was Jesus' great confidence? Jesus' great confidence was not in his own power. It was in who he was. He was God's son. Jesus, from the time he arrived on scene, said, everything I do, everything I say is at my father's will. He was God's son. He was God's beloved son in whom God was well pleased. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he was here and what he was to accomplish. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, die on a cross, and be resurrected three days later to rescue all of God's people from our collective enemies. In the midst of all of that, Jesus sort of displayed this beautiful confidence when he was before the king, Pilate, we'll call him a king, Pilate, the one who could do something about his crucifixion. I mean, if he would have garnered favor with Pilate in that moment, Pilate could have left him. In fact, Pilate tried to do it. He calls out to the crowd, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? The crowd said, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas, right? But before Pilate, Jesus had this kind of confidence. He looked Pilate in the eye and he said, Pilate, you would have no authority except that my father has given it to you. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he had come to accomplish. He had confidence in God. Jesus, King Jesus, had peace. In the story that Will read for us a little while ago, there he was hanging on the cross, experiencing an agony that none of us could ever even imagine. And while his physical body was in torments, his soul was not thinking about himself. He was at peace. What was he doing while the crowds were ridiculing him? And while the two criminals on each side of him were making fun of him, calling him out, Jesus said about those who nailed him to the cross, Father, what? Forgive them. And in the midst of his dying, he saves one of the criminals who expressed faith in him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus' enemies, his confidence, his peace, And three days later, we see Jesus' deliverance. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. You can make a case that the Spirit raised him from the dead. You can make a case that Jesus raised himself from the dead. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down. I'll pick my life back up again. The point is, Jesus was victorious over all of his enemies. Sin, death, and Satan. He rose victorious over all of his enemies. Our King Jesus was saved from his enemies. You know what that means for all of God's people? What that means for us is that salvation belongs to the Lord And God's salvation is our greatest blessing. It is the blessing of your people. Verse 8. That's who we are in Psalm 3. We're not God's king. We're God's people who are blessed under God's king. So as we read Psalm 3, let's understand these four things are now ours in Christ. Psalm 3 reminds us that we have enemies that wage war against our soul. Consider what and who your enemies are. 
don't look to your right or left. It's not either one of them. The Bible teaches us that our enemies, our most intense and vicious enemies, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The, the world that has been cursed by sin and death. Our flesh, like we learned last week, that is determined to rebel against God and reign as the king of our own kingdom. Prideful, sinful flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil who's behind everything that opposes God. Psalm 3 reminds us that we have enemies that rise up against our soul. And I love what Zach said this morning. I can't quote him. I wish I could. But he said sometimes we forget about it. We act as if we don't have any. We've been lulled to sleep by the enemy. <laughs> and we're being defeated and don't even know it. Psalm 3 reminds us that we have enemies that wage war against your soul. Secondly, Psalm 3 teaches us that we can have confidence in the Lord because King Jesus has been delivered from his enemies. We can have confidence. Friends, Jesus is our shield. He's the one who gives us eternal life, and he's the one who protects our eternal life. If you have come to Jesus by faith, you've turned away from self-rule, self-autonomy, and you have acknowledged Jesus as king, the rightful king of your life, and you've united yourself to him by faith and his grace, then here's what Jesus says about you. Switching metaphors from king and kingdom to shepherd and sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. If you haven't gotten excited about anything today, there's something to light your fuse. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life and you will never perish. Listen to what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Our confidence is in Jesus, who is our shield, not ourselves. Jesus is our glory. He's not just a shield around us, but he is our glory. He is our identity. That, that means that who we are, think about this. What is your identity in Christ? Who you are and what you do. Your character, your works, anything that's good in you, anything that's glorious about you, isn't you. What is it? It's Christ in you. And for the growing Christian, what we see is the radiance of the glory of Christ coming out of us through love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness and the list goes on and on and on. The gospel grace and glory of Christ radiates out of these jars of clay. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is our glory, not us. He's the shield about us. He is our glory. And what else? He is the lifter of our heads. When we understand our enemies, when we battle with sin, flesh, the devil, all kinds of wickedness all day, every day, brothers and sisters, not only can we become 
depressed and difficult, but the sin in our own heart can cause shame. And sometimes we feel hopeless, but Jesus is the one who lifts our head. Our hope is secure because of Jesus' faithfulness. Because of King Jesus' works. Because of Christ's righteousness. If my hope is based on my faithfulness, my works, and my righteousness, you're exactly right. I am hopeless. But it's not. In Jesus every day through the ministry of his Holy Spirit reminds me of that by lifting my head. And where does he lift it? I love 1 John. Right, Samisi? We talked about this this week. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. Stop it. Don't sin. I love the next word. But John knows us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, friends. Our confidence is in Him, not us. Psalm 3 teaches us that we can have confidence in the Lord because King Jesus has been delivered from all of his enemies. Number three, Psalm 3 teaches us that we can have peace. Enemies, confidence, peace. We can have peace in the presence of our enemies. Why? Because King Jesus has been delivered from his enemies, sin, death, hell, and has conquered our enemies, sin, death, and hell. We can have peace. So when the accuser reminds me of your hall of shame, you just remind him of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When that person who makes themselves your enemy rejects you because of your relationship and connection with Jesus, you can have peace knowing that your father receives you because of your relationship with Jesus. Fear God, not man. When people hurt us with hateful words or sinful actions, we can rest instead of fighting back, knowing that the Lord will defend us. Peter talks about this. Peter gives the example of Jesus. Imagine when, when someone makes themselves your enemy and, and abuses you with their words or hurts you uh, in some way. Here's what Peter says. He gives us the example of Jesus. Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an, an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The reason that you don't have to take matters into your own hands is because your king will. Psalm 3 teaches us that we can have peace in the presence of our enemies. Probably the thing that rocks our world the most is death and disease, wouldn't you say? 
We just learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that death is the ultimate enemy. There's a reason that death freaks most of us out. It's unsettling. It is our enemy, friends. But when disease or death threatens us, what does Psalm 3 teach us we can do? We can lay down and sleep. We can not be afraid. Why? Because we know verse 5. We will wake again because the Lord sustained us. The Lord will either allow this life to continue tomorrow morning, or he will wake you up, Christian, in his presence, which Philippians chapter 1 says is far better. Some of you are dealing with terminal disease right now. And some of you have this kind of peace. Do you remember Craig Sweeney, who sat right up here and testified of his terminal cancer? And he talked about a flashing T on his head, terminal, 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 terminal. And he said, the only difference between me and you is that I know mine's flashing. You, you guys don't, haven't got the diagnosis yet. You're not, yours isn't flashing. But every one of us, do we have tomorrow? We don't know. But friends, we can lay down. We can sleep in peace and not be afraid of even the ultimate enemy, death. Why? Because death has been conquered by King Jesus. And Jesus gives us life. And guess what it is? It's far better. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. But get this, non-Christian friend, whoever believes in me, that means that there are some who do and some who don't. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then do you remember how Jesus ended this? Do you believe this? What a question. And I bet you most of us say, yes, I believe, but we don't sleep well when enemies come along. Psalm 3 teaches us that we can have peace in the presence of our enemies because King Jesus has defeated our enemies. And finally, Psalm 3 teaches us that we can pray and praise the Lord for salvation from our enemies because King Jesus has already been victorious over them. Pray, pray and praise. We can pray with confidence, asking the Lord to arise and save us. But wait a minute. So often, especially those of you who are sort of sort of uh, introverted, critical, hypersensitive thinkers, when we get into a struggle against an enemy, uh, we turn inward and we just feel so bad that we're struggling against this enemy. Like we shouldn't be struggling. Where's that coming from? The enemy's real. Should David not have felt deep sorrow during that time? Yes, he's crying out. Half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, which teach us it's okay to feel suffering and grief and sorrow and anger. But the Psalms of Lament teach us what to do with it. And Psalm 3 teaches us what to do. Pray. Pray like a soldier who needs reinforcements. Don't just feel bad that you ran out of ammo. Pray and say, I need more. Pray like a child who's hurt or scared. Do you get mad at your child when they get hurt and scared? No, you want to run to their rescue. You have a father that's better than you are. Pray in the midst of struggling against enemies and also praise because salvation is of the Lord. We know this, that we have a whole Bible full of the history of God always keeping his promises. God always, always delivers his people from their enemies. 
Not necessarily physically, but always spiritually. We have a Bible full of that. The next time you face an enemy, whether it's spiritual or physical, you can rest assured that your God is faithful. He will deliver you too, based on his covenant promise in Jesus Christ. The fight is never easy. The fight is never what you thought it would look like or feel like, but it always has the same outcome for those who are connected to King Jesus. God is always faithful. He will give us the victory in Christ. Does that mean health, wealth, and prosperity? No, it means real victory. Holiness and righteousness and eternal life and King Jesus instead of the prince and power of the air, the devil. Psalm 3 has been an encouragement to my soul this week. I pray that it has been to you so that you too will have peace even in the midst of war against your enemies. Let's pray together. Father, thank you very much that you sent Jesus to be our king. You, you have established his rule forever and ever, and we say amen to that. We humbly bow the knee and call him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to the beauty and the, uh, the majesty of King Jesus. I pray that if there's a person in this room who has not yet surrendered to King Jesus, that they would see how foolish and ridiculous it is and, and destructive it is to keep acting like they're the king of their own life. I pray that you would show them King Jesus so that they can lay down their rebellion against you and fall on their face before your king. And this morning, we, we thank you that we can have confidence and peace, not because of us, but because of him. We praise you. And now we, we pray that you would commune with us, fellowship with us in a special way as we celebrate your salvation at your table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,